Pumpkinhead. Um, sorry? Pumpkinhead, the film with Lance Henriksen you were trained to recall in the last bonus episode was Pumpkinhead. No? Yes. Are you sure? Now, Pumpkinhead is a stone-cold Lance Henriksen classic. I'm pretty sure I'd remember that one. Well, look, a patron got in contact to say it was Pumpkinhead, and frankly, who are we to question the wisdom of the most beautiful people in the world? Who indeed? Pumpkinhead. Jeez, I'm really off my game. <clears throat> Sorry, isn't this a, a, a What the Conspiracy Week? Aren't we meant to be double-bluffing each other over the topic here? I think that joke has truly and utterly run dry. Yeah, fair enough. Ah, Pumpkinhead, Stan Winston's directorial classic. There's three sequels, you know, two of which are filmed in none other than Bucharest, and one of which stars Doug Bradley, Mr. Pinhead himself. The thing I like best about the first Pumpkinhead film is the way it will have a prologue and then immediately cuts to a shirtless Lance Henriksen doing work outside as the caption, The Present, appears. And it's not entirely clear if The Present is telling us that we've now moved ahead in time or simply if the shirtless sight of Lance Henriksen is a, is a gift to us all. Subtle, subtle, nuanced filmmaking there that I think, um, I think we should really appreciate more. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello, you're listening to The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Addison, and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy and the last voice any of us will hear before the end, Dr. M. Rx Denton. Which means you should be worried that what you're listening to now is the end. And are mm. you prepared? I don't think you are, Nigel. Mm. In if regards, there's anyone not, not called Nigel listening to this podcast, please stop we now. We don't want to know about it. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this, this, this is Nigel's last message. Mm. In regards to that opening sketch, uh, I think the first thing to say is that M wrote it. The second thing to say is, how dare you? How dare you suggest that I would not be able to remember the name of Pumpkinhead, Lance, one of Lance Henriksen's. No, 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 this is is directed at the patron who gave you this dumb stare. Honestly, I'm I'm insulted and offended, quite frankly. I mean, obviously, uh, you are a patron of ours and therefore one of the most beautiful people, and quite frankly, I can't stay angry at you. But nevertheless, Pumpkinhead, for God's sake. You might as well say, oh, did you know Lance Henriksen is an alien? Have you ever heard of that obscure indie number? Honestly, good God. Anyway, so I looked through the IMDb. Um, it turns out the film I was thinking of is called It's in the Blood from 2012. It's not a good film. It's hopefully not a film any of you have seen because it's not a good film. And that's that's all there is to say. But in fact, this is going to mean nothing to our listeners anyway because this is all about a reference that came up uh, in the bonus episode last week. So maybe we should just stop talking about it completely. But this does point out, if you do want to find out about the weird things we talk about on those bonus episodes, you should consider becoming a patron. Because it's not just conspiracy theory stuff we talk in the bonus episode, but actually, often the bonus episodes start off as being conspiracy theory related, and then become conspiracy theory adjacent, and then doesn't even really mention conspiracy theories, but becomes a, remember that film we watched back in 1998, you know, the one with the actor? Yeah, you know, that one. Um, yes. It had had a farm in it and maybe an alien spaceship that crashed into it. You know, it was probably one of the extra films. I mean, you, you know, you remember it. Yes, and generally I do. 
Oh, and um, well, I mean, and and just talking about the extra films, what a weird sequence of films they turned out to be, related really only by name mm. and not really by anything else. No, no, yes, I've seen the first one. I'm pretty sure I've seen the second. Yeah, the thing is, you wouldn't it. know the second. You was no, I wouldn't know it was a sequel unless yeah. you actually looked at the VHS cover. Mm. Anyway, it is a what the conspiracy week, and it is M's turn to hoodwink me, if 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 you can. So unless you have anything else to say, shall we uh, move move things along? We shall indeed. Let's move on over to What the Conspiracy with a Jazzy Jivey Beat. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Okay, Josh, this week we are going back to school, which is the only hint I'm giving you for the three perennial questions of when the conspiracy, where the conspiracy, and what the conspiracy. So, Josh, when does this conspiracy take place? Well, back to school, you say. Hmm. So at least it's, it's presumably post the advent of school, which puts it sometime in the last, what, 2,000 years? Not really giving me a lot of help, quite frankly. Um, I'm going to say specifically 1983. August. August 1983. Mm. Specific, you say? Mm. Specific. All right, where Mm. does this August 1983 conspiracy take place? Well, clearly in a school. Where are the most schools in the world? I don't know. America has the most universities, so um, let's say the the Grand Dog USA. You're not going to get more specific than that? No. I mean, really? Okay. I'm going to go generalist. I'm just going to say the American continent, anywhere in North or South America. Interesting. All right. Mm. So really, well, relatively specific for the when. Very vague to the where. I'm now quite curious to know how specific, vague, or ambiguous the what is going to be. Ah, well, see, here I've got you figured out. You said back to school as as the hint, which seeks to sort of steer me into the into the, the realms of education. But I know you're actually about to say back to the future and quickly just change your mind slightly. So it's going to be some sort of a time travel slash movie starring Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox-themed conspiracy. I see right through you. That takes place in August 1983, somewhere on the continental Americas. Yes. Interesting. So I have to say, your gambit and your specific gambit about the when, very, very wrong. Uh. Very, very wrong. Because we're talking about the turn of the 17th and 18th centuries. Right. Is that different from August 1983? Ever so slightly. Uh. Now, the where is Britain and the Holy Roman Empire, as Germany was called back in those days. So so we're basically looking somewhere between London and Hanover. Right. uh, Neither of which are in the wider American continent, I'm given to understand. Not not even on the loosest definition of what counts as American soil. And the what is the development of calculus. Calculus, eh? 
I'm sure that was involved in the, some of the calculations behind the development of the flux capacitor and Back to the Future too. So I'm calling that um, calling that a win. Well, actually, in that respect, you're right in some sense in that Isaac Newton talked about fluxions, and indeed his development of differential calculus was based upon his fluxion calculus. But it turns out that fluxions and flux capacitors are related by four letters and virtually nothing else. Like I say, I claim a win. So tell me about conspiracy theories and calculus. All right, so what do you know about the history of the development of calculus? Oh, gosh. Less than I used to. I studied calculus at high school. Uh, I used to be able to do it, but my calculus muscles have, have atrophied over time, what with not having any application for them in my everyday life. Didn't, didn't, didn't old Hypatia of Athens, wasn't she on her way to developing calculus before she got killed? And if she had, the course of human history could have gone completely differently? So I think there is something to that. I know that there's an awful lot of talk about what Hypatia may or may not have done in Alexandria as a proto-mathematician in the sense that we call mathematics now, because of course there wasn't the kind of formalism we have in mathematics in the ancient world. And certainly her being almost erased from history is one of the great tragedies of the development of philosophy over time. Did you actually see the film Hypatia? The Rachel Weisz one? Yeah. Oh, no, I never did. Quite interesting. Takes a lot of liberties with the story of Hypatia. But at the same time, most histories take fair liberties with the story Mm. of Hypatia because we've had to kind of reconstruct her history and what we think she was working on. Given the aforementioned erasure, 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 erasure from history. All right, Mm. so you you don't have any idea of the controversy over who developed calculus then? Not particularly. It was one of those things where, it would have been one of those things where the, the, the people coming up with it, like to write in code and all that sort of stuff so people didn't steal their ideas, I assume. There seemed to be a lot of that going on. So basically there are two people who discovered calculus independently of each other. In the United Kingdom, or Britain, or England, you have Isaac Newton, who is infamous for stabbing needles in his eyes, and Mm -hmm. over in the Holy Roman Empire you have Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who is famous for being very, very cantankerous. And they both kind of came up with the idea of differential calculus around about the same time, because civilization was basically primed for calculus to emerge at that point. These aren't people who are sitting isolated in rooms, inventing mathematical systems from whole cloth. These are people who are going, oh, all of these new, exciting developments in mathematics suggest a particular lacuna, and so they are working independently of each other, although independently here is a very, very conditional term, developing calculus and then discovering that the other person has developed calculus as well, leading to accusations that ideas have been stolen or that plagiarism has occurred. Now, here's a fun fact. I'm going to talk about two figures who are alive at the same time, who are in correspondence with each other, one of which actually visits the other's country, two men who get into a big epic mudslinging fight 
about who invented calculus, and it turns out they never met face to face. So it's it's like a sliding doors situation, except well, this involving calculus, and also has no trains. Yes, or or you know, involves a multipass in a civilization that doesn't require multipasses. Now. Just need to test your calculus knowledge here. So a train is traveling south from Britomart Station to Papakura at 40 kilometers an, an hour. Meanwhile, Lord Morrissey Morrissey is walking along the tracks from Papakura to Britomart at 3 kilometers an hour. Assuming continuous motion, how far away from Papakura does his lordship meet his fate? Yes. Good answer. All right. So... As I say, the standard story is Leibniz and Newton independently arrived and invented calculus using their own formulations and notations in the 17th century. So you've got work occurring towards the end of the 17th century and then a controversy that starts to occur in the 18th century. Now, this is the epic age of mudslinging. So people like to talk about the end of the 17th century as being the golden age of academic mudslinging. People liked to accuse other people of doing bad things and then responding in kind. And what's interesting about this particular age is that there are a lot of mudslinging matches going on in the academic world of Europe at that time. And that also led to people basically ignoring each other's work in order to maintain the sense of national pride. Newton and Leibniz were both natural philosophers, and they were engaging in a lot of correspondence. We have the papers of both Newton and Leibniz in libraries now, so we can kind of see what they were writing to one another. We can also see what they were working on at different points in time. And initially, their correspondence is relatively friendly, but starts to get quite confrontational, especially when they start accusing each other of stealing each other's ideas. And one of the reasons why Newton and Leibniz end up getting kind of offside is that Leibniz was very much a mechanist. Leibniz was of the belief that the world works in a really quite mechanical fashion. And he found Newton's idea of gravity to be just ever so slightly occultic. Occultic? Well, he was. Invisible forces. Yeah, action at a distance seemed like Newton was proposing a going back to supernaturalism or mysticism as a way of explaining things about the world. And that wasn't the direction the sciences were taking at that time. Mm. How did they account for gravitational effects? Was it air pushing down on us or something? Yeah, so you'd have notions of centripetal forces or centrifugal forces, the idea of like attracts like, so the kind of resurrection of Aristotelian notions, the idea of action at a distance, which we now take to be a fairly standard mechanical process in a deterministic universe, did really seem quite mystical. And given that Newton was trying to turn lead into gold the entire time in his search for the Philosopher's Mm. Stone, you can kind of see that if you knew what else Newton was up to, you might go, I mean, this gravity thing does seem like a little bit of occultic nonsense. Are you 
quite sure this is the fundamental and foremost natural philosopher of Britain, someone who believes that gravity is action at a distance. I mean, I mean that sounds like the kind of thing the Pope would say. Mm. Okay, so was 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 this uh was this the start of the falling out between the two, or did this did this spark an argument between them, or was this well, merely the first in the long string of things? We can look at two dueling theories here. The first is that Leibniz plagiarized the work of Newton. Then we're going to look at the claim that Newton stitched Leibniz up knowingly. And they both have some degree of secrecy and conspiracy. One of them is going to be incredibly conspiratorial to the point where if you had a button you could press that went dun-dun-dun, you'd be pressing dun-dun-dun like it was going out of fashion. So let's start, let's, let's start with the, the more prosaic one. This is the thesis that Leibniz stole Newton's idea of calculus. So mm-hmm. calculus emerges, as we say, turn of the 17th and 18th centuries, when Leibniz publishes his first work on differential calculus, he's immediately accused by the supporters and friends of Isaac Newton of plagiarism. And this is because Leibniz produces a paper on calculus and uh, uh, in 1684. So 1684 is when he publishes Nova Methodus Pro Maximus et Minimus, or a new method for maxima and minima, as well as tangents, which is not obstructed by fractional or irrational quantities. So this is the first formal publication of calculus in the Western world. The problem is, Isaac Newton had written a paper on calculus back in 1669. Right. Had this been distributed wide enough that it's conceivable Leibniz could have read it? So here lies the issue. So Newton writes his paper in 1669 and then refuses to publish it. Ah, one of those, yeah. Because he didn't in fact, people stealing his ideas? Newton didn't like publishing anything. So oh, no. the Principia Mathematica is you know, his, his major work. He publishes at the age of, I think, of 66. So he spends most of his youth writing and investigating the natural world, writing papers up, but refusing to publish them. And we know from correspondence with his friends they are encouraging him to publish all the time. Isaac, you've got to get these ideas out there. Isaac, you should really release this paper. Isaac, you're a member of the Royal Society. Why not publish this in the journal the Royal Society runs? And he would just refuse to publish. And we don't know why. There's no explanation as to why Newton was publication averse. But we know that he was. He simply was not going to publish these small papers. He was working on his magnum magnum opus, the Principia Mathematica. And then once the Principia is produced, he starts doing things like the optics and the like. So he starts a publication career very late in life. Now, we have the papers he wrote now. We also know that he was sending those papers around his friends. But he wasn't sending them to many friends. We think there are probably less than 10 mathematicians 
in the United Kingdom that he I don't know why I keep calling it the United Kingdom. I don't think the United Kingdom probably, existed. probably wasn't that, at that point, why. Yeah. I think I think I should just be talking about Britain and that way I can be vague as to whether Britain contained other elements other than other than England. He is sending his papers to friends in Britain, but less than ten mathematical friends. But the suspicion is that those friends gave Leibniz access to Newton's unpublished work. Right, but only a suspicion? Well, we've got some circumstantial evidence. So a copy of one of Newton's manuscripts had been sent to, I'm going to really, really butcher a German name, uh, Einfried Walter von Schauhausen, in 1675, so this had been sent by whatever counted as the post back in those days, to a colleague in Germany. And later that year, this particular mathematician was working with Leibniz. So it is possible that if the German held a copy of Newton's manuscript, and then he took that copy of the manuscript to a meeting with Leibniz, Leibniz might have seen it. Right. And in 1676, so a year later, Leibniz visits London because Leibniz travelled quite a lot, and he was working with John Collins and Henry Oldenburg, who were close friends of Newton, and they were members of the Royal Society, and they might have shown him the same manuscript by Newton, a copy which was possessed by at least one of them. Right. Do we also, we must have records, though, of when Leibniz was doing his work, though. Well, yeah, right. So here lies the issue. So I was about to say the other bit of incriminating evidence here is that Leibniz and Newton were corresponding by letter with frequency, and Newton at one point describes his calculus in one of the letters to Leibniz. But yes, as I mentioned earlier, we do have a fairly good corpus of the papers written by both Leibniz and Newton. And so we can track the development of both Newton's development of calculus and Leibniz's development of calculus. And at every single point where Leibniz might have seen the work of Newton, we can show that he's already done the relevant work a few years prior. And this brings us into a kind of interesting notion of primacy here, because it is the case that Leibniz published first on calculus. It is also the case that Newton invented calculus first. But in a sense, because Leibniz independently came up with calculus a decade or so later, and then was the first person to publish it, we can say that Newton first invented it, but Leibniz was the first person to actually formally publish on that work, and he appears to have come up with calculus independently of any of the work Newton had done. And this kind of gets us into a really interesting cultural distinction here, because these days... There's a rush to publication. You want to be the first to be on record with an idea. But in the 17th century, as long as you were known to have worked on a topic, which is to say that you wrote on the topic 
and you had reliable witnesses who had seen that you had worked on the topic, that was often seen to be sufficient to be the originator of an idea. Mm. I mean, yeah, we see that all the time with um, inventions as well, even going back a couple of centuries, or you know, rather than the rush to publish, it would be the rush to patent, because we know, you know there, are, there are heaps of examples of an idea whose time has come where you'll see multiple people working on um, the same thing and, and, and developing them independently. But, you know, one person, the Wright brothers, were, were the first ones to actually make it to powered flight, even though there were people all around the world, including Richard Pierce here in New Zealand. Um, work, you know, it's not like they were copying off of the Wright brothers' plans, but they were all working on the same thing that the Wright brothers got there first and lots of other things. Who was it? The radio? Wasn't, wasn't Marconi and a bunch of other people working on radio at the same time? There's, there's heaps of cases of that. So I assume in the academic world it would be similar, or at least it is similar these days, but yes. I mean, the, uh, the, that was not always the, case. the other example, of, of course, is Tesla versus Edison mm. working on what is the most effective way to transfer power over a distance to allow you to pump electricity into homes. And in that case, they both come up with rival hypotheses as the best way to do it, direct current versus alternating current. And then, of course, get involved in a, mugs a mudslinging match of the most epic proportions, which mm. led to Edison electrocuting elephants. Only he didn't. We've talked about that in an episode of this before. Oh, yeah, a... but, uh, I, but given I have such a low opinion of Edison, I would just rather prefer to believe he actually did electrocute those elements. Well, th there was a good chance he electrocuted dogs, or at least worked with someone who electrocuted dogs and didn't have a problem with it. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but yes. I mean, the other one, a little bit different, of course, is Darwin and Mendel, where Darwin's coming up with his theory of natural selection, evolution by natural selection, without any idea of genetics. So he knows that, 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 that traits are passed on from one generation to another, but has no idea by the mechanism how. At the same time, Mendel is developing genetics, and the two would work together nicely, but they weren't actually aware of each other. And it wouldn't be until some time later that people actually stuck the two of them together to come up with a, a grand synthesis. It probably doesn't help that Mendel was a monk working in a monastery well, who was exactly, yes. really, really interested in pea plants. Mm, mm. But anyway, Although that, that, now that's making me think of a gritty reboot of Breaking Bad set in a monastery, but Mendel's not working on pea plants. He's working on the evolution of pea. Mm, could work. Which for non-New Zealand listeners, pea is the term we use for pure amphetamine back home. So meth, basically. Yes, yeah, meth. Right. Something uh, probably freely available to, to, to um, Newton and Leibniz, quite frankly. They were, all, they were all on cocaine back then, weren't they? They, they the good stuff. They, they did enjoy a good old snifter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Whether yeah. that got across on the microphone, I have no, sure no idea whatsoever. So Newton's supporters basically accused Leibniz of plagiarism. So look, Leibniz had access to Newton's papers. Even they claimed if Leibniz had independently come up with calculus initially, he was then borrowing the more advanced work by Newton. So one of the theories goes that, yeah, Leibniz was working on calculus. It was only when he saw 
Newton's mathematical work that he worked out there was a simpler way to do it that he was then able to finalize his calculus. Because, of course, the kind of notation we use for calculus is not Newtonian. Newtonian calculus turns out to be slightly more complicated than it needs to be. Leibniz notation is the one that we use in the here and now because it's a much simpler way to do a very complicated thing. And I still don't know when Lord Morrissey Morrissey is going to hit his fate, Josh. Have you worked it out yet? Um, tea time. The proper, proper time for an Englishman to meet his maker. Mm, also a good answer. Now, it also doesn't mm. help that Leibniz had, had been accused of plagiarism before. He had claimed to have come up with a method of differences for numbers in series, but people had worked out that someone in France had actually already generated this idea, which caused Leibniz huge embarrassment. I believe it's one of the things that made him leave London the first time he visited. He was able to acquit himself by displaying his private notes, by going, oh, look, I can show that I didn't copy anyone's work. My diary entries kind of show that I've been working on this for quite some time. But the fact that he'd been accused of plagiarism in the past was used by Newton's supporters in him around about this time. Now, a consequence of all these claims of plagiarism was actually it put back, it put back British mathematics by about 100 years. How so, if Newton was supposedly the guy who was on the money? Because the British wouldn't use Leibniz notation. And oh, it turns out the Europeans <clears throat> were. The Europeans go, oh, this, this new calculus, because other Europeans didn't really care about the national pride of the British. They're going, well, if we've, got, we've got this new idea. It's been written up in an article or a book. We can use it to solve a whole bunch of differential issues. Let's go full steam ahead and engage in wacky mathematical work. And the British went, we are, we're not using Leibniz notation. We're going to use Newton's much more complicated notation instead. And that led to a situation where British mathematicians were unable to use the work of the European counterparts because of a difference in the way they were resolving their problems using different notation and also being steadfast in refusing to use that notation for about a hundred years, which meant that they were using a much more difficult system to look at differentiation. And that was co that caused them quite a lot of backsliding in the mathematical world. Hmm. Who would have thought that, that Britain's opposition to how things are done in Europe would end up having horrible negative consequences for them? I know you'd almost think that there's a lesson in that today, mm. although I'm not quite sure what it is. No, no, it's a mystery. So, yeah, so we've got our, our first claim is that Leibniz stole the work of calculus from Newton with claims of plagiarism. And whilst there's secrecy involved here, there's not really a conspiracy. It's simply no. Newton's supporters accusing Leibniz of doing something untoward and the grim consequences of that. So instead, let's move to the much more conspiratorial aspect of the story, the claim that Leibniz was stitched up by Isaac Newton. Mm, some sort of a 
some sort of a reverse sting operation or something where he, he do the one of those ah you've done exactly what I wanted you to do and now it's made it look like you plagiarized even though I know you didn't that sort of a thing. Can't, well, I mean, there's going to be an element of that to the story. So, as said in 1684, Leibniz publishes Nova Methodus Pro Maximus et Minimus, and it turns out that yes, Newton had actually developed calculus earlier. It also turns out that Leibniz had developed calculus earlier. So he publishes Nova Methodus Pro Maximus et Minimus in 1684. He'd actually developed the system described in that piece nine years prior, but his had never got round to writing it up. So like Newton, Leibniz was kind of sitting on an idea and going, well, when I get time, I'll write this particular thing up. But on the publication of Nova Methodus Pro Maximus et Minimus, Newton, who's in correspondence with Leibniz, as previously mentioned, kind of gets in touch to go, hey, I already invented that, please give me credit. And Leibniz, who, as mentioned before, was quite cantankerous, was going, yeah, I'm not going to give you credit for A, work I've never read, although, as Newton points out, I actually did describe some of the system to you in a letter, although Leibniz goes at that point, well, yeah, sure, but I'd actually already worked it out by that point, so I kind of ignored that. And also Leibniz going, I'm not giving you credit for work you haven't published. I mean, you can say, oh, I came up with this idea a few decades before you did, but you didn't actually publish it anywhere, so how would I know that? Mm, Which seems a fair point. But as said, Leibniz is cantankerous. So Newton publishes The Optics, and Leibniz writes an anonymous review of it in Acta Ereditorium. So erudite, so acta ereditor. Ah, I cannot say ere- See, I'd, I'd be lousy in the ancient world. Mm, acta, too much Latin. Yeah, precisely. Acta ereditor. E R U D I T. Yeah, there we go. Ereditorium. I should just do the whole evil dead thing. <laughs> I see the name of your journal. Exactly. In which he insinuates that Newton's calculus came after Leibniz. So this is an anonymous review of a work by Newton written as if it's by a kind of neutral third-party observer, and he just slips in that he thinks that, as the anonymous reviewer, that Newton's calculus came after and didn't precede Leibniz's work. Mm, The equivalent of setting up an alternate Twitter account these days. Basically, yes. Now, it's not clear that Newton was aware of this review, but in 1708, a fan of Newton, John Keel, wrote a paper on the laws of centripetal force, which was published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, so the Royal Society's journal. Now, Academics today uh, complain about the period between submitting a piece and then getting a piece published. It turns out this problem has been around for a long time because Keel writes his piece in 1708. It doesn't get published until 1710. And in this particular paper, he claims that Newton invented calculus and doesn't state explicitly but really insinuates 
that Leibniz stole the idea from Newton. Right. So is, is this where the claim was made public first? Had people been muttering about it before this, or so it seems in? like it had it had been muttered, but it never kind of been written down. Right. And Leibniz takes exception to this because this has been published in the foremost journal in the English-speaking world at the time, the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. So he makes a complaint to the Royal Society saying, look, one of your members has claimed that I stole the work of Isaac Newton. I can show that, A, I was the first person to publish on this topic, and B, even if it turns out that this Isaac Newton fellow who claims that he wrote his work down well before I did, I can prove that I came up with this idea independently. And also, by the way, I was the first person to actually publish on this topic. So he appeals to the Royal Society in Britain to basically censor John Keel. And so the president of the Royal Society appoints a committee to investigate these allegations. Now, Josh, who do you think was the president of the Royal Society in 1710? My guess would be Isaac Newton. It was indeed Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton, who is having to investigate a claim that his foe, Leibniz came up with the idea of calculus first, has been asked to, has been asked to investigate this claim and appoints a committee to investigate the allegations. What do you think happens next? I assume the committee finds entirely in Isaac Newton's favour. You're kind of right in that it is true the committee produces and endorses a report saying that Leibniz concealed knowledge of prior relevant work. They don't actually, the report doesn't actually say he plagiarized the work. It simply says that Leibniz is guilty of concealing knowledge of prior work. But crucially, this report was not written by the committee. Ah, was it? This report was written by Isaac Newton. Newton. Right, yeah. So Isaac Newton points a committee of his friends presents them with a fate accompli. This is what you're going to find. You just need to sign and endorse the documents. You know, here's a document, give it a stamp, give it a signature, and we're going to release it. So coincidentally, the Royal Society concludes in 1715, could take them a while to engage in this investigation, that Leibniz was was concealing knowledge of the work of relevant achievements of other researchers, like, say, the president of the Royal Society, Isaac Newton, based upon claims such as, well, you know, some of Newton's friends visited Leibniz in Germany and had letters of Newton's describing the calculus. And when Leibniz visited London on previous occasions, he was in the presence of particular works of Newton and may well have copied their contents down. We're not saying he plagiarized it. We're simply pointing out that he should be aware that other people came up with ideas first. Mm. I wonder, so what, what, what do these friends think of this? Like, they're sort of being accused of 
wittingly or unwittingly being collaborators in this plagiarism. Although I suppose if there was a bunch of them, then they could each think, oh, he must mean another one, another person was the one who went in and spilled the beans. Well, no, but I mean, the claim here is not that these people secretly gave Leibniz on the sly, because, oh, have a look at this particular thing here. Okay, so we know all mathematicians doing mathematical work. We're carrying around our mathematical papers. No one's even aware that Leibniz is working on these particular issues. So we're just sharing information with one another as colleagues are likely to do. And right. that's where they go, look, Mm. They're not making that, the claim that Leibniz is engaging in plagiarism. They're saying, no, you, you, just, you just should recognize that Newton got here first and you knew it. You knew Newton got here first because you've seen the evidence he was working on this topic before you came up with the idea. So they don't, they don't need to think that they've done anything wrong. They just need to think that Leibniz has abused their friendship. Right, okay. I assume Leibniz took this very well, with a cheery disposition. Well, he dies one year after the report was released. That's an extreme reaction. Yeah, I'm actually, I actually don't know much about the death of Leibniz. I, I'm assuming it isn't based upon stress and anxiety. I'm assuming it's based more upon the fact that we're talking about people in the 17th and 18th century with both deplorable lifestyles and also deplorable living conditions. But yes, the report comes out, Leibniz dies, People become aware after that point that Newton was actually the author of the report. Leibniz's death didn't stop Newton from continuing to litigate the claim that actually his fame had been defamed by Leibniz's publication. So even after Leibniz's death, Newton was trying to get people to say that Leibniz was in the wrong and had not been recognising prior work. So... It turns out dying wasn't enough to stop this feud. Newton was going to continue to litigate this for a long time afterwards. Now it is recognised that actually calculus was developed independently by two different people. It's actually quite possible it's been developed by more than just two people, but only two people have kind of got to the point of publishing and then fighting about it. Anyone else who may have been working on the issue might have gone, yeah, I don't really want to get involved in that. I mm. might just stay quite quiet about this. But yes, it actually seems, at least in the case of Newton's campaign against Leibniz, we have an actual conspiracy in that Newton is asked to investigate insinuations concerning himself, decides to appoint a committee to investigate those insinuations or allegations, writes the report himself, gets his colleagues in the Royal Society to give it the imprinture as if an actual investigation has gone on, and then present that as being a proper investigation. As commentators on the feud point out, they don't even go so far as to ask Leibniz, "Uh, can we see the evidence you've got to show that you at least independently came up with calculus? No, it's a... It's a fate accomplished. It's a Moscow show trials situation. Mm. Oh, we're going to do a fair and independent investigation. Who's actually working on it? Well, Isaac Newton is, of course. He's writing it, but we're not going to admit that Newton wrote the report. We're going to pretend it was actually written by the committee and that information doesn't come out for quite some time. Right. So, I mean, 
I guess Asimov got the last word there. Asimov, I keep saying. I keep th- thinking of the wrong Isaac. Um, well, I mean, no, Newton, but it's true. Asimov did get the last word because he well, outlived yeah. Newton and, Le- and Leibniz through the trick of being born after they were dead. Yes. Yeah. yes no, sorry, but, but Newton, Newton got the last word. So uh, did Leibniz have any supporters who were still sticking up for him after his death or was that kind of the end of it? Well, the funny thing about this is it's very much a feud in Britain. It's really not a feud elsewhere. As I say, the Europeans, as if the Europeans are one homogenous people, the mathematicians working on continental Europe went, well, Leibniz's work is easier to use, and we've got a written-down, formally published one. So Newton's work occurs several years afterwards, at which point mathematicians in continental Europe are already using Leibniz notation. So really, in continental Europe, people are going, well, we're just going to use Leibniz's Mm. stuff. And the fact that the British are so adamant, you must recognise Newton as being first. And mathematicians in Europe are going, yeah, we don't really have this national pride thing. It doesn't really end up being an issue anywhere other than the UK, as far as I can tell. Hmm. I suppose that makes sense, yeah. Yes, I can imagine the rest of the people who didn't have any skin in the game going, well, this one's already here. Oh, Newton did it first. Okay, yep, good good for Newton. Yep, I agree. I can see how they're the same. Uh, Anyway, back to the one we're already using, yeah. Yeah, you might go, well, you know, maybe Newton did come up with it first, but his notation's really, really ornate. This Leibnizian stuff is much easier to use. And as I say, when we were taught calculus at school, we were taught to use it in Leibniz notation. Yes, in fact, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd heard the phrase Leibniz notation a long time ago and never really put two and two, or at least did, didn't. At the time I learned Leibniz notation, I didn't know who Leibniz was. So, um, yeah, and it didn't actually mean anything to me. It was just what it was called, as far as... And, of course, neither of us actually remember enough calculus to be able to make a sophisticated 2 plus 2, but calculus-inspired joke. I remember quadratic equations. I I can't remember how differential equations work. I remember I used to understand them, but I don't anymore. I remember I used to be able to do Laplace transformations, which... Is that how you turn a differential equation into a quadratic equation? Something like that. But I never got Fourier transformations. Those are just bizarre and, and, and yet actually genuinely useful if you do any sort of work with waveforms or electronics or what have you. I'm more of a furry transformation kind, kind of person these days. Mm, I'll say. So have you any more to tell me about this, this, this feud? between your your Newtons and your Leibnizes, or if we come to the end? Well, the only thing I'll say now is that actually one of the best bits of evidence we have now for why it has to be a case of independent discovery is it turns out the motivation for why they were working on their individual calculus projects are quite different. So Newton was interested in what's called a cinematic approach. So he was working on his theory of flexions, which was the notion of the fundamentals of instantaneous change. So he was interested about objects in movement and solving the calculations required to work out how moving parts work. Whilst Leibniz was actually kind of interested in the analytic approach. He was using geometry 
and going, well, look, if we, if we take shapes and do transformations to shapes, how do we do those transformations? So the actual fundamentals as to how they got to their idea of, oh, calculus solves these problems, come from almost opposite ends of the mathematical spectrum. So there really wouldn't be any point in Leibniz cribbing the work of Newton or Newton trying to adapt the work of Leibniz into their own work because they're approaching the problem from very different directions. Hmm. I guess that makes sense then. Uh, I just like the word fluxion, quite frankly. That's that's the one thing I'm going to be taking away from this episode. Well, and so you should. So finally, when does his lordship meet his fate on the train tracks from Papakura to Brutamart? What time did the train leave again? Was it midday? Let me check my worked example. Actually, I never said. Right. I well, never said. In that Actually, case... Because no, the question I asked was, how far away from Papakura does his oh, lordship meet away. his fate? Yeah. Right. I would say it's three kilometres an hour he was walking. Yeah, and the train's travelling at 40, which 40. is quite slow for a train. It is kind of. Um, I would say, what's the distance between Papakura and... Actually, I don't care. I'm just going to make up an answer anyway, so I'm going to say 300 metres. 300 metres? That's... I mean, I'm no number wang expert, but, I mean, 40 kilometres an and uh, I can't say I'm not even, not even just non number weighing expert. I cannot say the word hour. I'm not a number weighing expert, nor can I say the word hour. But if his lordship is travelling at three kilometres an hour, moving north from Papakura, and he meets his fate three hundred metres away from the station, with a train travelling at forty kilometres an hour going south. You're basically saying that Papakura and Britomart are right next door to one another? I'm saying I, I am plucking numbers out of thin air. The only thing I will say definitely is that when he meets his fate will be sometime in August of 1983. Interesting. I see how you've mm. tried to rescue that. Mm. I see how you tried to rescue mm. that. Except, oh, it's, I would say there's no Britomart station in 1983, but of course... Your what was a time travel conspiracy, wasn't it? Exactly. How do they time travel in Back to the Future 3? In a DeLorean with a flux capacitor. No, by train, you idiot, by train. Pushed, but there was pushing a DeLorean with a flux capacitor. Yeah, but then there's a flying and train then there was the, the flying final train afterwards. Yes, no, I see. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get where you're going. I should, have, I should have picked up on that. Yeah. It all makes sense. This is from the person who doesn't even remem- remember the film Pumpkinhead. I will dance on your grave. Yours and everyone else's who insinuates I might have forgotten Pumpkinhead. With the kind of cough you've got, I'm, ex- I'm expecting I'll be dancing on your grave any day now. It's it's almost gone. It's just an occasional yeah, cough. Like but... your life, it's almost gone. Fair enough. Do you have an actual answer? Did you plug those figures into a differential equation? God, no. No? Okay, right, good. Then, then I'm safe in plucking a number from, from thin air. Uh, are yeah, we done? I have to say, even, even if you're plucking a number three, th- from thin air, 300 metres is obviously wrong. It's just so obviously wrong. Interesting fact about me, I have no head for distance. I don't understand distances at all. You can, you can ask me, like, like if, if it's far enough away that I can imagine pacing it out in metres, I can work it out. 
But any further than that, and I just do not have a clue. Distances mean nothing to me. It's a, right, it's so, a brain oh, I see. Thing. So, no, right, right. I'm now, I, I want to test this hypothesis. How far away is China from New Zealand? No, you could tell me it's 1,000 miles. You could tell me it's 10,000 miles. I would believe you. The, the, the figures mean literally nothing to me. All right, so all right, so I, I just want to test this slightly further. So if I said that China is eight kilometers away from New Zealand, well, you would go. That's probably not correct because eight kilometers is. I don't know how two, far it yeah. is, but I know it's within Auckland. Two hundred two hundred kilometers. Uh, if that's how long's New Zealand? New Zealand's about. Isn't New Zealand about? That's that's longer than two hundred kilometers long. So I guess no, we're not in China yet. See, I can if 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 I have a known quantity, I can maybe do a little bit of figuring around. But but just simply in absolute terms, I am just imagining that in your head now. You're going right. If I can just work out how many New Zealand exactly, that is exactly exactly the only way I would be able to work it out. Yeah. Oh, I I had no idea that you had this this distance related issue. Wow. no, it's just, I don't know. It just doesn't mean a thing to me. Well, we've both learned something today. Mm. You've learned about the controversy about the invention of calculus, and I've learned that you measure every length by a standard unit, a.k.a. How many or how much of a proportion a New Zealand is between two, two points. Mm. True fact. True fact. So I think, I think, how far away is New Zealand from China? Do you know? I actually have no idea. Okay, well, I, here we go. This is not a case of my not knowing distances. This is just my just that not particular about distance. The distance. Yep. Okay, so anyway, anyway, we've come to the end of an episode. But before we go, we do, of course, have to say um, thank you to our wonderful patrons, even the ones who make slanderous accusations about my film knowledge. Um, and we love our patrons so much that every week we record a bonus episode for them. And this week, we're going to be talking about a recent BBC podcast about conspiracy and all manner of COVID wackiness. You've listened to the whole thing, have you? I have indeed. Every 10 to 15 minute episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we'll talk about that, basically. Uh, Might as well tell you the name. It's called Death by Conspiracy, question mark. If you wish to know what we thought about the Death by Conspiracy. So, Josh, could you say that in a British British accent? Because I think that's a... That's a very New Zealand way of saying death by conspiracy, question mark. How would a Brit say? Let's say death by conspiracy. Death by conspiracy. Midlands, death by conspiracy. And now on BBC Two, death by conspiracy. By conspiracy. Anyway, that's what it's called. It has a gratuitous question mark located in your minds. Um... If you want to know what we heard about, what we thought about that podcast, if you haven't, if you, if you've listened to that podcast, if you haven't listened to that podcast and want to hear us tell you about it, so you don't have to listen to it, uh, tune in for that episode. Which you can, if you're a patron, if you'd like to be a patron specifically, so that you can listen to that one episode, uh, go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And good luck uh, to you for doing so, because you also get to listen to all the older bonus bonus episodes. Um, if you don't want either of those things, uh, then then just carry on. Carry on as you were. It's all good. Yep. Carry on, you wayward son or daughter mm. or child. someone who's in between. You mm. wayward child. You red-headed stepchild. Exactly. Uh, so to all the red-headed stepchildren out there, I simply choose to sign off in the method of saying goodbye.
Flexion. Prefer that to Durango, to be honest. You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Edison and M. Dentif. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com. Oh, actually, I, I, I'd like you to go on. Tell me more uh, about Pumpkinhead. That was me. That was me going on. I don't know. It's a film. He's in it. He summons a demon to do stuff, and then realizes that he probably shouldn't have summoned the demon, and spends the rest of the film trying to unsummon the demon. Have you actually seen any of the sequels? No. 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 I I now kind of feel that I should watch three and four, the ones that were filmed in Bucharest, because a I want to see how well they've managed to make <coughs> Bucharest a metropolitan area of Romania look like redneck cities in the United mm. States. And also, because I was looking at the cast list, and going, yep, every single name in this cast, other than Doug Bradley and Lant Henriksen, is a very Romanian name. And I just want to see small-town Hicksville accents on mm. Romanian, a- Romanian a- actors. actors. I mean, mm. Romanian actors are very good at pretending to be anything You'd other have than to be, Romanian. I assume, but, yeah. but, I mean, because, I mean, given so many of those straight-to-DVD films were made in Romania, so Prophecy 4 and 5 were filmed in Bucharest, although I think they were actually set in Bucharest, they could get around this. But no, I just want to watch Romanians pretend mm. to be small-town Americans summoning summoning demons. Sounds like good times. Good times. And drinking flame beer with Lance Henriksen. <laughs>